Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. When a pathogen jumps from an animal to a human, bad things can happen. Zoonosis. The word used to define this unhappy transmission was a mildly obscure term for most of us until we heard about the bats in Wuhan. The rest is history. Our history right now. Human interaction with the animal world, for good or ill, goes back to the beginning of time. But once we settled into early forms of agriculture, our bonds with animals grew closer with major consequences. It all started with the domestication of wild boar. Here's Keith Dobney of the University of Durham speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast Peruvian Mummies and Animal Domestication back in 2007. It seems to have happened around about 9,000 years ago. In, uh, originally it was thought in one or two places, mainly in the Near East, the kind of cradle of our civilization as we know it today. Uh, but there is evidence that uh, other kinds of animals were being domesticated around about the same time and then later. So certainly from about 9,000 years ago, which when you think about it is an incredibly short period of time considering how long humans themselves have actually been around on the planet. So we've been hunting and gathering uh, for three and a half million years. And the last 10,000 years is a tiny blip in terms of, uh, of a change in uh, economics, in, in terms of changing to farming. A long view of history there from the Naked Scientist archive. Zoonosis and, more generally, our interaction with animals are our subjects this week. And joining me for this 50th episode of Naked Reflections are Dr Chris Smith, founder and managing director of Naked Scientists, and the medical anthropologist Dr Freya Jeffcott, who's fellow of Queen's College Cambridge and a regular contributor to Naked Reflections, joining us from Norway. Let's get on with the programme. How did this whole animal-human thing get started? Chris? It's interesting that you picked 2007 for the date that you extracted that clip, because that was also the first year that I gave a lecture at the University of Cambridge for the medics, the vets and the natural sciences students all about emerging infections. And I presented a, actually a brace of two lectures and made the case using various worked examples for what causes new infections to emerge 
where they come from, and what the likelihood is that this is going to happen again. And I, I'm kind of pleased but embarrassed to say that many of the things we were saying then in 2007 have all come true. And one of the first slides I put up in that lecture was for SARS, the first SARS. I also talked about dengue and its relatives, and we've seen Zika viruses emerge and cause problems. I talked about Ebola. People said, why on earth do you want to talk about Ebola? There's you know, very few people who really get troubled by Ebola. And then look what happened to that. I talked about the flu shortly after we had a pandemic of flu. So in some respects, it's it's kind of embarrassing that virologists have been talking about this prospect of, of the problem we're all now suffering under happening for a really long time. And we still got caught with our trousers down. Well, Freya, we're taking it seriously now, aren't we? Very much so, though I think that this is one of those things where obviously infectious diseases have been much more of sort of daily life and dealing with them for some of the poorer parts of the world much, much longer. And it's more that this emerging infectious disease happens to be uh, forcing the attention of a lot of people in, say, North America and Europe and such that normally wouldn't think about them that much. So we're really taking it seriously because it's affecting us, not them. Absolutely. And I think maybe this is going to create a bit of an opportunity for us to actually begin to tackle the problem of emerging infectious diseases, because it's one of those things that we have to do as a sort of planet collectively. Uh, it can't be down to just sort of individual countries to struggle along alone. Would you say, Freya, that most human diseases originated from contact with animals? So one of the papers that a lot of people cite, which I think is from 2008 and was led by Kate Jones at UCL, I suggested that about 60 to 70% of infectious diseases in humans have zoonotic origin. So definitely, um, absolutely, it might even be more than that. Uh, there was a good study by Serge Morand, I can't remember when, that showed essentially a strong correlation between when we domesticated a certain species of animal and how many pathogens we share with it. Chris, does our intensification of agriculture and sort of the whole process of human progress, does that increase the likelihood of, of zoonosis and, and contagion? There are three main reasons why new infections emerge. And I suppose we should explain what we mean by an emerging infection. An emerging infection is something which is either a new kid on the biological block, it's never circulated before and now it is, or it's something that was restricted to a very tight geography and has suddenly begun to spread across a much broader geography and impact more people. And really, you can distill out three main mechanisms by which these things happen. And one of them is there's some kind of change in the environment. And that change could be that the environment becomes drier, the environment becomes wetter, or the environment is colonised by humans. The second one is that there's some kind of change in the host. We're the host and also the animals are the host. So what changes? Well, perhaps humans encroach on an animal's territory. Perhaps the animal encroaches on the human's territory. Perhaps mass urbanisation means that we make a mess and dump rubbish and create uh, other kinds of, of litter that then facilitates the encroachment of animals into humans. And the third one is there could be some kind of change in the pathogen itself. In other words, the thing which is going to jump the species barrier just by chance changes in some way that means that rather than just stay rooted in one particular species, it can now take a up residence in another, i.e. us. You can really find those three mechanisms playing out in almost any example that you choose of an emerging infection. And usually it's not just one of them. It's usually 
two or in fact all three of those mechanisms are at play in making these sorts of diseases happen and as has already been alluded to the close association between humans and animals for domestication has played a very important role in history and if we wind the clock back a couple of thousand years a virus that everyone's heard of which is measles shares a very close relative called rinderpest which was in cows cattle cattle ancestors and it's almost certain that as humans became more numerous on earth and we we actually embraced agriculture and animal husbandry and brought ourselves into close contact with these animals we allowed the ancestor of measles to jump into people and then establish as a human endemic infection that we now call measles i think moving maybe from the virological perspective to the more epidemiological anthropological when we talk about zoonotic outbreaks which i think a lot of people have on their mind right now we also have to think about what leads to amplification because there's lots of this sort of viral chatter going on between animal species and human populations almost constantly and we really also need to work out what once that pathogen has made the jump into a human what determines whether it will then spread amongst humans or just sort of die out in that individual so there was a paper by Emma Glennon uh in PLOS maybe a year or two ago now which suggested that things like Ebola which are also zoonotic that maybe 65% of the time Ebola might make the jump from its animal reservoir or an intermediate host to a human and then it just ends there so yeah i'm quite interested in also looking at the things like uh housing density or maybe malnutrition or the kind of other factors that then let it spread amongst humans once it's made that jump Chris, I wonder if you could comment in terms of the host change, presumably the great speed of communication, the movement of people, the inexpensive movement of people, presumably that has actually contributed to um zoonosis considerably. David Attenborough actually hinted at this when he was being asked about the fact that the world is facing a biodiversity crisis. And he said there are too many people we've overrun the planet. And really what he's hinting at is that the strongest driver here is actually human population. It is us, I'm afraid to say. And it is no coincidence that in all the places where we've seen big outbreaks of diseases and emerging infections they coincide with human population explosions. Uh, we've mentioned Ebola. In the countries in which Ebola emerged on the grand scale in tragic numbers in West Africa most recently, those areas have seen about a 500% increase in population and it is people living together living together in high density and encroaching on the natural world which is necessitated by the fact that people need somewhere to live that's a key driver but people also come along with roads and vehicles and so you end up with a big catalyst to cause the jump in the first place to amplify the infection when it gets into the infection and then transmit the infection. And if you wind the clock back to say the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, people say, "Well, why did that happen? Why did 100 million people die of this pandemic strain of influenza?" It's not a coincidence that that was associated with the end of World War 1. There were hundreds of thousands of people in a debilitated state all in one part of the world, all corralled together in very close quarters. and then they were deployed all over the world as they were taken demobbed back to their home countries and they took the virus with them and so you had a susceptible 
amplifying mobile population. And in the present era, what have we got? We, When we don't have lockdown because of coronavirus, we've got more than a million people airborne around our planet at any moment in time. If you paused time and totted up the people who are normally sitting in first class, business class and steerage class on Qantas, Virgin, BA, Emirates, whoever, it's more than a million people. And that means that no city of any kind of major significance is more than 24 hours from any other city of major significance. And that's well inside the envelope of the incubation period of most diseases. So we have created not only an information superhighway with the internet, we've created a germ superhighway with our wonderful communications that we all normally rely on today uh, to take people from one side of the planet to the other. So some people say that actually we're lucky that we haven't actually uh, ended up in this position sooner than we have. We were, we were really cruising for a biological bruising for a long time. It's finally happened. That makes a good point also about not doing sort of an even amount of blame around the world. Whilst we might say population growth in some of these poorer areas where disease emergence tends to happen, which is often the lower latitudes. Again, this has come up in this podcast before. There's a lot of displacing the cost of modernization and the wealth of the, what I guess we call the global north to these countries too. So a lot of the deforestation and resource extraction and ecological disruption that does increase uh, disease emergence is actually to the benefit largely of the global north, which is largely insulated against these sorts of disease emergence events. So when we, I think Ed, when Attenborough has talked about this, sometimes he hasn't necessarily been as careful as he should be in making it clear that this is not an inevitable feature of human population growth, but a certain way of humans living. And often it's the wealthier ones living and then the costs ending up on the poorer peoples. You know, my shoulders are sagging listening to you two. We hear one problem after another and one, I wouldn't say disaster, but a series of factors that combine to create this uh, zoonosis and, and the pandemic that we have today and, and have had before. Before we have a break, give me some good news. Give me something uh, that I can look forward to the future and the listeners can with a little bit more optimism because it sounds like, and maybe it's just my perception, but it, it sounds like these factors are all coming together and there is no escape from the germ superhighway. Well, there isn't at the moment. And the reason the whole world is in thrall to this is that we have, we're now reaping what we've sowed. And uh, notwithstanding what Freya is pointing out, which is that one has to consider why we've got some parts of the world more deprived than others. It is a fact that uh, some countries have got very big population crises and they are brewing the next one of these. And I know that's not good news and you wanted good news, but China has a problem with coronaviruses, not once but twice with this new coronavirus and with the original SARS coronavirus because there was a population explosion in China and the population in China is now dropping. That means we have to say, well, where is the population burgeoning now? Because that's the one to watch where the next hotspot will be. And the answer is the African continent, which is set to, to really, really increase its population in the forthcoming decades. And there is where we must pay attention. And I suppose one piece of good news is that we have learned a huge amount. I mean, we've we've learned a ferocious amount about coronaviruses in the last six months. We've also had the wake up call. I think governments internationally have had the wake up call that they can't ignore this kind of thing forever. And this will attract significant investment into better surveillance. There will be better ways of doing rapid diagnostics and we will have learned a lot about how to do the management of certain diseases like this new coronavirus and that will translate into better healthcare ultimately so i think there have been some some wins from this and certainly i think the the environment has won 
because we've woken up to the fact we quite like having a nice environment and we quite like the fact that it's not noisy all the time and we quite like the fact that the air quality has improved to a certain extent and uh, therefore many people are saying well, well how can we hang on to some of these gains i didn't like the commute when i had to do it but i had to do it now i don't have to do it i can work from home how do I hang on to some of these positives? So there, there have been some silver linings to these clouds, but we mustn't gloss over these things. We have to do something about them now. So again, I'm a terrible person to go to for a sort of a, a cheery cap at the end. Whilst I agree with Chris that this sort of disruption of normal functioning and a kind of more appreciation for alternative ways of doing daily life might provide some opportunities to manage this better. As a category of public health concern, emerging infectious diseases came about in the late 1980s following AIDS. I think it was sort of coined in 1989 by Stephen Morse at a sort of National Institute of Health conference. Um, and at the time, he made it clear that this is a problem that needs to be tackled economically, uh, environmentally, politically, that you need this sort of wholesale change in the way modernity is going. But then unfortunately, by the early 90s, a group of sort of microbiologists had sort of changed the agenda because of their areas of expertise and interest and had said surveillance and technology, these are the answers, this is where we have to invest, kind of missing the larger addressing the drivers and in fact disparaging action in that area. And I worry that, again, we're going to try and pin this all on technological solutions or increased surveillance and such, when really what we need to address is uh, poverty, our relationship with the natural world, a neoliberalism, which seems to be the path to our disaster. Yeah, so I think that before we go down that route, we need to even dream a little bigger about what we can do at this time to change the direction the planet's headed. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Chris Smith, and Freya Jeffcott, and we're discussing zoonosis and animal magic. Now listen to this highly percipient observation from Wendy Barclay of Imperial College London on the Naked Scientist podcast, What is Love?, back in 2013. She was talking then about a small coronavirus outbreak in Saudi Arabia. So genome sequencing suggests that this is really highly related to viruses which are found in bats. And again, since the SARS epidemic, a lot of work has been done on, on coronaviruses and looking for new viruses because we think that SARS, in fact, came originally from bats, although it seems that SARS went through other animals first to sort of adapt and allow it to cross that species barrier and get into humans. This virus actually seems much more similar to viruses which are in bats, uh, suggesting that it may not have gone through an intermediate animal species, but may have come directly across from bats into humans. Chris, that interview was published in 2013. Did anyone pick up on it? No. <laughs> but then I'd like to point out that, um, I mean, the, the, the reference is, of course, to what we now call MERS-CoV, which is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus. This is a disease very similar to the one that we're all struggling with at the moment, SARS-CoV-2, but in this instance was carried by camels and appears that when you get too close to your camels, the camels can share their love with you and you can catch this virus, which causes very dramatic chest infections. But uh, Nothing changes because back at the beginning of January, uh, I began to get information about this this outbreak that was potentially happening in one tiny corner of a big city in one bit of China. And uh, people said, ah, oh, it's probably just one of these things, a bit like the flu. And we made some programming 
content about that and everyone ignored it and told me well that would be tomorrow's fish and chip paper and it didn't go away and then the next week we did it again and we invited freya to come and talk about it that time and still people didn't really pay that much attention a month later it was a very different story let's look at the other side of the zoonosis coin the sort of intense domestication of animals that started in victorian times do you buy the anthrozoological theories about the benefits of human pet interaction is this something that really helps us or hinders us freya Oh, I, I absolutely believe in the benefits to humans and perhaps the survival of some particular species of animals in this relationship or their proliferation, whether their quality of life is great or not, is um, questionable. I, I think we can go even further back, though. I mean, Aristotle has a history of animals where he talks about the relationship of humans and animals or our oldest sort of prehistoric art is of animals and the oldest sort of spiritual rituals we have, which are mostly burials often incorporate animal bones and such. I think domestication is a, a tiny part, and I think uh, domestic animals and our relationship with them is a well-described but still quite small part of our spiritual and physical relationship with sentient animals. So we've touched on the sort of interaction between us and the animals and separating animals from one another and, 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 and from humans. But Freya, you were talking about more fundamental changes to the sort of social economic structure of society, to, to capitalism, to um, the sort of technological revolution, how we handle things. Um, what, what sort of things do you actually practically have in mind? I don't have the like grand scheme that fixes the world all in one go. I, I can see that having sort of capital, like free market capitalism is not a great sort of agenda setting ideology for us. Uh, clearly, we need to address um, the, I guess, abuse and extraction kind of approach, both to the sort of natural world. So just rampant consumerism, uh, be it deforestation or moving more to agricultural land and such, to sort of carefree international travel, all of these sorts of things. We need to hem that in and rethink the way we want to organize society and a relationship with the world. But again, I think it also comes down to sort of larger concerns about the way we treat other people in the world, because it tends not to just be an extraction of the natural world, but of certain countries. And we need to sort of address that too, if we're going to start getting the world in a better direction. And Chris, what specifically about COVID-19 and the pandemic we're facing right now? What, what should we be doing other than washing our hands and space and face or whatever the, um, the soundbite is from number 10? What should we do to ensure that there isn't another pandemic? Well, there will be. And that's the thing. We have to open our eyes to the fact that, that this will be happening. There will be another flu pandemic. I can say that with absolute certainty. Whether there'll be another coronavirus pandemic, I've got the odds on my side. If I said there will, I'll be right. Because we think there are several thousand, maybe four or five thousand coronaviruses in existence, many of them in bats, many of them very similar to the one that has already let the species barrier not once but twice and caused SARS Mark I and SARS Mark II, the one we're experiencing right now. So the first thing is we mustn't be blinkered to the fact that we can control everything. We can't. We have to be accepting of the fact that this is going to happen again. It's going to happen periodically and it's probably going to increasingly happen more often. And the reason I'm saying that is because many of the factors we've discussed today continue to be factors and to continue to worsen and intensify. They include climate change. And if 
climate change plays out the way that we think it will, then the amount of livable land area on Earth is going to diminish. And if people don't want to live in an area, you can bet your bottom dollar animals won't want to live in that area either. And I'm being slightly facetious, but what I'm getting at is if you have an area of the world where it becomes impossible to live, the people will move. Now, it's possible that the animals that live in those areas will also move. And therefore, again, you're going to compress animals and people together. It may be, though, that the people move and they encroach on and invade more virgin territory that the animals were living in, again, facilitating the jumps of nature, whatever the animals have got into people. And and it's not just a one-way street. And this is the other thing people often think. They think of it from a very human perspective. The reason the chimpanzee population in the world has dwindled down to about 10% of what it was is because uh, A, we've uh, done a lot of hunting, B, we've robbed them of their habitats, but also we've infected chimps with our viruses. And in a recent study, scientists found that if you look at what's killing off chimps, they're dying of human common colds. And we know this because we can prove it genetically. And what's a common cold for us can be a devastating illness for them in exactly the same way that what's a run-in-the-mill virus for a bat gets into humans and kills us with a horrible dose of Ebola. It's exactly the same equation. It's horses for courses and viruses are well optimised for their host. So we have to open our eyes to the fact that this can happen. It does happen. It will happen more. And the drivers are all there. We have to move quickly now while we are still capable of turning this old tank around because all boats have momentum and you throw the ship into reverse two miles offshore, it will still be going forwards. Yeah, I I worry that we're still taking too much of an exporting view that people need to learn uh, the language or the variables. First, that we're assuming that they don't have them already, but uh, then that they need to learn the language, the variables, the approach that we're saying is the ideal and the way forward, given that the problematic approach very much came from sort of 19th century European thinking and behaviour. There are lots of parts of the world and lots of populations that have a far more a sort of sustainable relationship with the natural world and sort of communities that can protect against these kinds of awful global catastrophic events. So I, I think it needs to be far more of a supportive dialogue. I'm, I'm quite hopeful that maybe one day soon we might move away from the sort of international health regulations, top down, quite restrictive, very biomedical approach to tackling global health issues and might end up with something a bit more like, say, the Climate Convention, where we have some shared ambitions, um, some particular uh, shared established values, and then countries and populations themselves work out how they go about reaching them and what they need to be supported in doing that. I think we need to not be overly prescriptive. Well, on that note, I'm going to bring this podcast to a close. Thanks to my guests, Chris Smith and Freya Jeffcott. If you liked our 50th episode, please get in touch with any reflections of your own. You can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk and let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. 
the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.